today is Dr. Kevin Curry-Knight, a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University's College of Education. And this is your second time on the podcast. Welcome back, Kevin. It's kind of a riddle because second time on the podcast, but first time as a guest. That's right. You interviewed me about my book, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? Yeah, it's a great book. The tables have turned. (laughs) And we're going to be talking about self-directed learning at the college level. Yeah. Uh, And before we get there, though, we need to get your story, Kevin. Uh, Where did it all begin? And how did you go from what I assume to be a a conventional um, academic background and get into this world of of self-direction? Well, where it all began was I was born in Dearborn, Michigan, and no, that's that's too far back. Let's thank you. I appreciate you not going <laughs> let's that start, far back. <laughs> let's start. Yeah. So I have been in high school and college classrooms as a teacher of some sort since the year two thousand six, and uh, both you know college and uh, teacher, then college instructor, then college professor, and through all of that. Up until a few years ago, I was pretty conventional, um, you know, lecture, but you always kept lecture to a minimum. So by conventional, I don't mean I was just lecture all the time, but, you know, lecture, small group, large group discussions. I thought, you know, my job is to know the stuff that kids need to know and then kind of fill their heads with it. When they come into the classroom, I choose what we learn, uh, traditional assessments and stuff like that. And and what were you teaching specifically at the high school and then college level? Oh, I was, so as a high school teacher, I was a special educator. I actually started as a substitute teacher for a year. Amazingly liked that enough and became good enough at it that I became, I guess, what some states would call a paraprofessional. Others would call a teaching assistant. Um, So I was usually assigned to kind of help students with uh, more severe special needs. Um, And then I became a special educator mostly in science classes, but in some history classes and some other things. Yeah. And then I got a PhD. I decided to get a PhD in education. So I went through all that. And like I said, I was a pretty conventional um, teacher. Uh, I wanted to make things fun, interesting for students, but you know, you also have this mindset of like, I'm the teacher, you're the student. My job is to tell you what you need to know, give you assignments, you know, tell you how you need to learn things give you tests and quizzes and, you know, traditional stuff. And ironically, it was a few years ago, I started really looking into self-directed learning because I came across research in preparing for a class that I was teaching on learning and motivation. And my job was to kind of um, look at all the research, the theoretical and empirical research on learning and how it works and motivation and how it works. And I started realizing it, it took me a while, but I started realizing that the things that I'm looking at in terms of what the research says doesn't really align very well with what my students will be expected to do as teachers and how the school system is designed. I even started to realize that some of the things I was teaching my students about how motivation works, I was saying one thing and I was doing another, right? So you talk about intrinsic motivation, which all research pretty much confirms that intrinsic motivation is very powerful. Uh, It doesn't have the same limitations that extrinsic motivation like grades and points and things have. But then you teach students that and you say, okay, your job then is to take a test on it and it's worth a certain number of points, so you better study for it, right? It's an incongruent thing. Hmm. Um, So 
I started looking at this research. First, it was on things like how motivation works and the importance of choice and autonomy and motivation. But then I started looking at other research about the importance of, of interest. When people learn things they're interested in, uh, it works a lot better. And even things like uh, the study of video games as a learning tool, which I think you go over a bit in some of your books. And it started to occur to me that what the thing that makes uh, video games so powerful is learning tools and why kids will voluntarily spend hours and hours trying and failing and learning and trying and failing and learning is precisely that video games are designed in a way that's almost polar opposite to the way school works. It's voluntary. There's no huge penalty for failure. Uh, so students are more apt to choose more challenging things because they know if they fail at it, they can always come back. Um, there's no grades. I mean, there's a point system in video games, but the points don't really mean anything in terms of like, I'm going to, you know, take away privileges if you don't get a certain number of points or, or whatever. Um, and I guess long story short, I just started realizing and my students started realizing because I brought all this stuff into class to teach them about and discuss. We all kind of started realizing that this is great, but that's not the way school works. The way school works is very extrinsically motivated and the teacher decides what you're going to learn. There's really no role for student interest. And at this point, when you are talking about school, are you talking about K to 12 or higher education or both? I'm talking about both. They're, okay. they're structured in a very similar way. Um, you know, the teacher is kind of the one who decides what's going to be learned or the department or the curriculum. And your job is to teach it and then give tests and quizzes. And yeah, I mean, both are structured that way. I would say if anything's not structured that way, the very lower grades, kindergarten, first grade, second grade are probably less structured that way. But even there, they're becoming more structured that way. Um, yeah, so I started really realizing that that if this literature is correct, and I had reason to think that it was because it was all aligning, it was all consistent with it, with other research, that I was going to have to start doing things a little bit differently. And I started by kind of dipping my toes in the self-directed learning water by doing things like, okay, instead of just giving you a test or quiz or mandating that you write a paper, I'm going to let you choose. And I gave them a fairly limited choice. Like you can choose between these four or five different ways to show me that you've mastered the unit. And when I did that, the results not only seemed to be better, but students seemed more excited about the process. They would come up to me and talk to me about their projects. They would give me longer projects than I think they would have written as a paper. When I gave students the option of doing an audio or video presentation instead of a paper, some students would give me these things that, la that were 35 minutes long. And if you translate that out into a paper, it's, there's no way that equals the amount of paper that I would have signed. You know, so it's just more, they were more enthusiastic about it, it seemed like. Um, so then I started thinking, well, why well, can find the choice to just that? Why don't I give them kind of free range? You decide, you create your own project that kind of illustrates mastery of the unit. And again, I got better and better results. And then I started thinking, well, for various reasons, why don't I give them choice over what they're going to learn and how they they can learn it? Uh, and I've started doing that, and I've I've give I've gotten pretty interesting results. Um, you know, a few students take it as an opportunity to uh, to lowball their assignments, but most of them do really well. They put a lot into it. Now, at this point, we're still talking about college classes where a student 
signs up for a specific class with a specific title and description and, and expectation of what's going to happen there. And so when you say you're, you're giving them the choice of what to learn, I imagine that that's still within a fairly constrained box, right? Can you maybe give us a specific example of how you've, you've done this recently? Yeah. So the syllabus, the course that, that, I'm, that I do this with, um, I do it to different degrees in different courses, but the course where I really give them the mo most free reign, uh, first of all, there's a few things about the course that make it possible for me to do it. It's a senior level course. These are teacher candidates who are just about to go into their student teaching. So they're almost done with their degree program. So first of all, I have the luxury of it being a senior level course. They have a lot of the content knowledge already. Uh, I don't have to worry so much about hitting certain content because they're coming in already having three years of college instruction. Also, this isn't a course that that leads into another course. So this isn't a course that's a prerequisite for other things. And the reason that's important is that if it was a prerequisite for another course, I would have to make sure that all the students had the specific things learned that they need so that they can all pass into that next course that might require the background knowledge of my course. Um, so the way I do it and the way I make sure that they are still following the course objectives is that like every syllabus in a college, you're going to have goals and objectives. And in a college of education, those goals and objectives aren't necessarily written by me. They're written by the department. They're written by our certifying boards. Um, so what I do is I tell the students that when they submit their proposal where they propose to me what project they want to work on, they have to align it with at least one of the standards that govern the course. So there's basically 10 standards that govern um, the course that I teach, and they have to link it, their project, to at least one of those standards, and maybe more if they can. And that basically means that they're aligning what they're doing to the course. So it's not free reign. It's not like they can just go out and learn whatever. But it's loose enough where they have a lot of latitude to, to learn whatever it is about the course topic that they want to learn. So I'd love for you to, to drill down even more here. And can you tell me the name of the course? Can you tell me an example of an assignment or project that you give them and, and the specific constraints and then what kind of sure. things that they end up turning in and, and how they differ? Yeah, the, the course name is called Foundations of Learning, Motivation, and Assessment. So like I said before, it's like this course that that puts together all the research on learning, the research on motivation, the research on student assessment test, you know, like testing in the role, its role in learning and things like that. Um, so the second question was, can I give you an example of, was it like projects that students have done? Yeah. Well, when you say, okay, you need to do a project for this course, what, what are the constraints? What, okay. what are the non-negotiables and, and what things are flexible? Yeah. So here's how I, um, explain it to students. We do a series of three different projects. Each project is three weeks in length. And so that takes up nine weeks of the semester. Um, and the way I explain it to students is that I want them to imagine when they're figuring out what project to do, that this will be the last day of their college education and they will have no more college classes. And tomorrow they will start teaching in their own classrooms which is the career they're going into. I asked them to think real hard about a list of three or four things that come to mind that they would be kind of freaking out about because they don't feel like they know enough about. 
And I tell them that those things should be related to either learning, the, the process of learning, the process of human motivation, what motivates people, or the idea of assessment. And once they write down a list of those things, I say, great, those are the things that I really think that you should design projects around for this course, because those are things that are outside of your comfort zone. You don't feel like you know enough. And that's exactly what we're here to do is to remedy that knowledge. So what they do at the beginning of each project is they create a project proposal, which is almost like a learning contract. A lot of folks who do self-directed learning at the college level or advocate for it, advocate for learning contracts. I don't really approach it as much of a contract because I want students to be able to change parts of their project midway. So I don't want it to function as a contract where I can say, well, you agreed to do this. Um, I tell them as if you need to change something about your project along the way, that's fine. Mm. Just, second, just to, to comment yeah. on that really quickly, Kevin, I, yeah. I feel like that's how a lot of parents who are new to unschooling or other forms of self-directed learning uh, conceive of, of how it works in, in the beginning mm. and, and think like, all right, I'm going to have a contract with my kid that my kid's going to learn X, Y, or Z subjects mm. within this certain amount of time and I'll be able to hold them accountable. And, and yep. it just often doesn't work out like that. Like the, the, you need more flexibility. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of, there, I can see a certain amount of merit to that idea. And I think that's why the idea of learning contracts is so large in the self-directed learning, you know, at the college level space. But the problem I have with it is that oftentimes, and I had this problem when I was in school as well, people would ask you to choose a topic that you want to write about or choose a thesis or whatever. Sometimes you don't know what the topic is, is going to be until you start researching it. It's like a chicken and egg problem. So I've had a lot of students tell me, well, I really wanted to write about this or do some project on this. But when I got into it, this particular sub area was really interesting to me and I just couldn't keep away from it. So if you have a learning contract, you know, the response is, well, tough. You, you agreed to do this other thing, do this. And that just means that the student's going to do something they're not really that interested in at the moment. And I would much rather them, um, I almost always tell my students, you know, follow that area that interests you. If, if that means you detour your project, that's fine. I've had students change their entire project partway through the, the project itself because they maybe went to a professional development or something and, and found this new area that they're really excited about. And I just tell them, as long as you think you can do three weeks of work in the week and a half of the project that's left, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. Um, you know, and I, I get, I get good results that way. Uh, I, I don't think I'd be able to say no, just, you know, I know you're really interested in this other area, but stick with the contract. That would be really hard. This Definitely makes me think about my undergraduate experience and how I found this little program called the individual major. And they said, you can design yeah. every you know element that goes into your, your bachelor's degree and you need to write a thesis and you need to get two uh, professors to rubber stamp your plan, but you get to come up with the plan. You get to come up with the title of the, the major. And there was only a handful of other uh, students at Berkeley who were doing this when, mm -hmm. when I was, uh, in the program. And uh, have you run into other programs like that? I feel like that's what a lot of people may initially think about when we think about self-directed learning at the college level, like getting right. to sort of design your own major. Because right now you're talking about this within the, the context of, of a of specific a class. class. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, I don't know of um, a lot of programs. I mean, when I did a master's at the University of Richmond, it was a similar program. It was called the Master's of Liberal Arts. And you really got to pick from, you know, it's you basically designed your own major. And I designed mine in like political philosophy because that's what I was into. Um, yeah, and I know there are, you know, master's programs that are that way. I don't know of a whole lot of bachelor's programs. I At East Carolina, there is a program called University Studies. And I've heard that at, at other universities, it, it's a similar thing where it's kind of a blank canvas and you get to choose your own uh, major, but I don't know how popular that is. And I, I know that the reputation of like the university studies kind of majors is unfortunately, I think this is, this is a wrong reputation, but the reputation is like, Oh, those are the kids that aren't serious. Cause if you were serious, you would pick a major. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was my memory. Also, uh, there was a department called the interdisciplinary studies department mm-hmm. at Berkeley. And it did have a sort of reputation for just being for, yeah, people who couldn't really figure out what they, they should actually study. So they, they yeah. make up some, some crazy thing, which is what well, I did. Of course. Well, your story is really interesting is because you tell it in, in part in, in your most recent book, uh, why are you still sending your kids to school? But I mean, your, your switch was pretty drastic, right? You went from, was it some physics related? Yeah, astrophysics field, and then you came across self-directed learning, right through Grace Llewellyn, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, and, and also the, you just had a burning passion for it. Yeah, and John Gatto and the Sudbury Valley School books. Yeah, and I I feel like it it feels drastic because I went from a hard science into, you know, I in broad terms, you know, an undergraduate education major is not considered, you know, a very prestigious major. <laughs> I think it's right th- down there at the bottom in the pay scale, along with, you know, child and family studies. Right. And, and so I, I feel like that's maybe where some of the, the cachet of the, the story comes from. Uh, but kind of like you, I was designing my own program to study alternative education, self-directed learning, unschooling. Uh, And so it was very meta in the same way that you have a sort of meta level to your class about learning and motivation and you are doing it in a more intrinsically motivated way. So this is actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Kevin, which is how much do do these ideas about giving college students more opportunities to be intrinsically motivated, more choice, more, more autonomy. Like how much does this apply to other uh, academic disciplines? How much does this apply to courses, which are not kind of terminal level senior seminars, like when you're teaching, Um, is this only possible in, in your little niche that you have here? (laughs) You know, it's hard. Um, I guess I'm, I'm minimally pessimistic. I'm cautiously pessimistic, because you know, one of the things we just kind of alluded to earlier was the importance of like the prestige of a degree program. So one of the reasons university studies and things like that don't have such a good reputation is because the idea is, well, you go to college to get a particular degree. And if you're not getting a particular degree, you're kind of missing the point. And I mean, ideally, that's not what college is, right? You go to college to learn more than when you came in. But I think with college, it's so much emphasis has been put on almost like college as a training school um, that it becomes really hard to do self-directed learning because a lot of degree programs, people go through them so that they can get a degree in them. And in order to get a degree in them, which is like a certification, uh, the university has to find a way to make sure that every student has learned, you know, uh, W, X, Y, and Z 
which is you know related to the career. So even my field is teaching, um, which is literally a state licensure program. And in order to get a state licensure, we in the College of Education need to ensure somehow that our students learn all these specific things that the state thinks they need to know in order to be qualified teachers. So I guess the way I most like to say it is, unfortunately, if everyone in our College of Education ran things the way I did, we would lose accreditation very fast, right? Because they would come to us and say, well, are you guaranteeing that all your students are learning all of these same specific skills? And we'd all have to say, no, I, I can't guarantee you that. I can guarantee you that that students learn skills that are related to teaching, but I can't yeah. guarantee that they're all learning very specific yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So some of them have learned W, X, Y, and Z, and others have learned F, uh, H, yeah. R, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I had mentioned before that I make sure students link what they're doing to a specific uh, standard for the class. But that doesn't mean that everyone's going to link to the same standards, right? There are 10 different standards. And some people, let's say, link to, they do their projects and they cover one, three, and five. Other students cover one, four, and six. Other students cover seven, eight, and nine. You, you know, it's, it's all over the map. I can guarantee that students are covering the standards. But what the state really wants to see is, but are they all covering the same standards? And like I said, my class, my course is positioned in a way where it's not a prerequisite for anything. Uh, and it's not a course that is like a freshman level course where you know they're going to be passed on to other classes as a sophomore. You know, so think about a course like, uh, you know, if you're doing a foreign language, let's say you're doing Spanish one or whatever at the college level. It's pretty important if you're going to be going into Spanish two that you as a professor can ensure that all of your students are learning certain things that you know will be necessary to proceed to Spanish too. Uh, it would be pretty weird for the professor not to do that. Uh, and, I, and the Spanish two teacher would be very mad at you if, if they discovered, well, these students don't know certain things that I have to take for granted that they know. Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess that's all like a really long-winded way to say that it's really tricky at the college level, just as is at the K-12 level, because there are like certification standards. There are this, there are, is this expectation that students need to get this, that, and the other thing before they leave. So it's, we'd love to give students choice. I'm sure a lot of professors kind of would love to give students a lot of choice, but in a lot of ways they're constrained. Yeah. And I want to come back to the credentialing versus learning uh, issue and and definitely we should talk about a book that we both uh, love, which is the case against education. Yeah. But first, uh, yeah, I want to comment on on this idea that maybe it's just not possible that that frequently to do very self directed learning in college. You know, I, I think of the the physics course series that I took and like really trying to imagine how we could have been more self directed in that scenario is a struggle yeah. for me and. and so I've always conceived of, of higher education as kind of this, this package deal that a self-directed learner can consent to or, or choose to, to take a different path. But if you're going to yeah. consent to it, then you're, you're signing up for yeah, fairly linear, you know, curriculum-based, often lecture-based learning. And that's just something you kind of have to put up with because there are many important reasons why it is that way. Maybe the, the line, linearity more so than the lecture. 
Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to get too philosophical on it, but that no, no, get, is get kind of my, that is kind of where I live. That is kind of my specialty. I'm a philosopher of education. Um, yeah. It, it, I think that like that bundle makes a lot of sense here and freedom. Like we want to think that, okay, well, students are free to take my course. So therefore they've signed up for this thing where I come in as the expert and tell them what to do uh, and tell them what they need to know. But that's true at different levels in different situations. So if you're taking an elective course, that's very true. Students don't have to take your particular class. They can take any elective. So them taking your course is like an indication that they consent basically to the terms of your course. I, I want to take this because I'm interested. And that means the professor is going to teach me what they think I need to know, all that. Okay. So that's less true in my situation, because all students who are going through the College of Education need to take this particular course. So their choice isn't this course or not. Their choice is a teaching degree or not. And this course is just like one of the things they need to do if they want a teaching degree. Uh, the other option, if they choose not to take this course, cool, you don't get a certification. Um, that's a very different choice than this course or not. Because of the connection to state licensure, because if you want to be a public yeah, school teacher, right. you if have you to go be through something teacher, like this. You got to do this. Whereas the elective course is not like that. It, I mean, the other example that I often use is like when I go to a, a personal trainer, I pretty much consent to the personal trainer saying, cool, I'm going to prescribe a list of workouts for you. And you're going to do these workouts. And I'd probably be disappointed if they didn't. I would be disappointed if they say, cool, create your own workouts. Like, no, I'm choosing to come to you because of your expertise. But that's a choice that I can make. And that's something a personal trainer can do because my choice is use this personal trainer or walk away. I can, I can leave. I can go somewhere else. I can go to another trainer. I can decide not to use a trainer at all. Uh, but yeah, in my course, it's like, if you don't go into this course, if you don't want to take this course, your choice is really, do I want a teaching degree and a certification or do I not want to be a public school teacher? So it's just, a, a it's, it's, a, it's a much lesser choice to take my course than it is to take a certain elective course. So let's dwell on your pessimism for a second here, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you feel like there is room for more self-direction, for more intrinsically motivated uh, types of learning? in higher education in general? Where, like, where do you see opportunities or, or, or room for yeah. expansion? Well, I, I do think that there is, but I think we have to really um, drill down on what we mean by self-directed learning. So I mentioned that there was uh, some folks who are, are, I guess, interested in self-directed learning at the college level. And one of the writers that I would recommend people read is Malcolm Knowles, who was writing in the 1970s up until the 1990s. And he pioneered this idea that's called andragogy. And andragogy is essentially the study of how adults learn. So if pedagogy is the study of how kids learn, andragogy is the study of how adults learn. And he argued for various reasons, both good and bad, that adults are uniquely equipped in a different way than kids are to control their own learning. And that adults probably would like to control their own learning more than, let's say, a six-year-old would. So here's his definition of self-directed learning. It's from a book called Self-Directed Learning, A Guide for Learners and Teachers. He says, in its broadest meaning, self-directed learning describes a process in which individuals take the initiative with or without the help of others in diagnosing their learning needs, formulating learning goals, 
identifying human and material resources for learning, choosing and implementing appropriate learning strategies, and evaluating learning outcomes. So I read that very long passage to illustrate that the way he's thinking of self-directed learning is the way I hope people would think of it. It's not either freedom or no freedom. It's what are you giving students freedom of and what are you controlling for students? So he mentions you have the free, like you could have the freedom to diagnose learning needs. You could have the freedom to choose what you're going to learn. You could have the freedom to choose how you're going to learn it. You could have the freedom to figure out how you're going to demonstrate that you've mastered the material or how you are going to check your own progress. All of these are freedoms you can give students without giving students other freedoms. So let's say you're in a course that is really prescribed in terms of deciding what students need to know. So let's say you're in one of those like engineering courses where it's like, it's just not negotiable that you have to learn this, that, and the other. You have to learn all of these things. You could still give students freedom on how they're going to learn it, right? Or you could still give students freedom on how they're going to assess their progress and demonstrate mastery. Um, or you may have a course where you can give students certain freedom on what they're going to learn, but the assessments they have to take at the end of the class are not negotiable. Maybe because they're That's kind of like level your class courses. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, again, I'm in a college of education and there are certain assessments, tests, and quizzes that are uh, aligned with our certification standards. And every section of a course needs to use these, these metrics, need to use these assessments. That doesn't mean you can't give students other freedoms. Like I could still say, okay, but you have the freedom to decide what you're going to learn and how you're going to learn it, but you still need to pass this particular test assessment at the end of the day. So, so I, yeah, I, I'm feeling like I, I have a grasp over three of these variables, the what, the how, and then the mastery indicator. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you use the word needs also. Yeah, okay, it, what, right. How is that separate? Yeah. So the way Malcolm Knowles conceived of this is, uh, and he goes into, in, in this book, again, called Self-Directed Learning, he goes into a lot of detail on how he did his self-directed learning. One of the things that he would do at the beginning of the course is to like, basically give a sort of learning inventory where the, the goal is to say, here are the things that if you're going into this profession, let's say you, you really should know, but maybe you already know some of these things. So take this learning inventory and diagnose like where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, what knowledge you already have and what knowledge you don't have. And I, I guess I do this in a less formal way, but in my own class, uh, one of the examples I use is there are some students who come in to my class and they're already really skilled at writing lesson plans because their degree program or whatever spends a lot of time on, on lesson plans. There are other students who, for various reasons, don't feel very comfortable at all doing lesson plans. So when I give students a choice of what they're going to learn, oftentimes students who are really fluent in lesson planning won't really choose those projects at all because it's like, I've, I've already done that. I already know that. My time is best spent elsewhere. Other students will spend two or three projects doing lesson plans because they just don't feel that confident. So when you diagnose your learning needs, you're getting students used to figuring out what are the things that I know and I probably don't need to spend a lot of time on. And what are the things that I don't know and I probably need to spend a lot more time on? So here's where I'm seeing the potential distinction between adults and younger people in that if I'm imagining like a 21-year-old college student, 
um, taking one of these assessments before your course and then saying, okay, here are the, the areas where I'm, I'm, I'm weaker. I need to focus on these areas. I compare that to maybe a 14 year old who, who may avoid the areas of weakness and, mm-hmm. and kind of dwell in the areas of comfort and familiarity. And I feel like that's maybe a lot of parents concerns about removing kids from a, a structured coercive learning environment, that they will only do things that are comfortable. They will never be challenged uh, be, because, you know, who's, who's going to make them do something uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, this actually brings me into an interesting story in terms of the course. So one of the last, the, the final steps I took in terms of self-directed learning, when I was still like, well, how far should I take this? Uh, for various reasons, I decided that I need to give students control of their grade. Um, mostly that was because if I'm controlling the grade, students are still on some level doing the project they think I want to see rather than the project they actually will benefit from. Um, and in the back of my head, I was still like, wow, I mean, this could really, this could go badly, right? This, if I don't give students a grade and they're controlling their grade, well, aren't they just going to kind of lowball their projects? Aren't they going to do lesser projects? Aren't they going to um, have less incentive? And one of the reasons I decided to do that was because there was an interesting line of research that said that grades in this kind of paradoxical but understandable way disincentivize you from choosing hard things. And the story that I use to illustrate that is this. One of my students was doing a project. He was a music educator and he was doing a particular project. Um, forget the, the specifics, but it was something when he was explaining it to me that sounded like he should probably develop a website as his final product. And I mentioned that to him and I said, you know, Ish, you should, you should do a, a website. Because it just sounds like this project is best formatted in a website. It's your choice, but that would be my recommendation. He said, you know, I, I like that idea, Dr. Curry Knight, but I, I, I've never developed a website before. I'm not at all confident in this. I, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do it very well. And I reminded him, but you have control of your grade. So it doesn't really matter if you do it that well. It matters if you learn something from this project. And maybe you'll develop the website later. You don't have to get it right at the end of three weeks because I'm not going to like fail you. I I can't fail you for this. And he thought about it and he said, you know, I'm going to do the website. And he did the website and true to form, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of website that someone who's really skilled at doing websites would do, but he was pretty proud of it at the end of the day. And I see that a fair amount in the class. And again, going back to grades, One of the problems with grades is if I'm in control of your grade and I give you a rubric that says, here's the things you need to include in your project, you're going to do a project that's pretty safe. You're going to be more inclined to say, well, I want to get that A. So I'm going to do a project where I know I can do all these things really well. Well, if you want learning to happen, that's not a very good incentive structure, right? You're you're, you're basically telling people, choose something you think you can do really well. Um, Whereas once you lose the idea of the professor grading you, oftentimes people will choose harder things. And that's something I kind of discovered also when I was looking at the research on video games. And, you know, kids who play video games are, are this an anomaly because they voluntarily do really hard things with no obvious payoff. There's no obvious incentive. It's not like someone's giving them money every time they beat a level. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there are these fabricated rewards like experience points or gold coins, but but, but they're, they're, they're right, they're fabricated. They don't really mean anything in yeah. the quote unquote real world. Yeah, we all know that. Yeah, right. You can't trade them in for a prize. Um, uh, every once in a while, you know, there, there's a robust World of Warcraft economy that yeah, yeah, bridges yeah. the real world and the, yeah. the digital world. But but right. that but aside, an, yes, that's an exception. Yeah, um, and that that's what got got me thinking. Like, oh, well, maybe I should hand over the grading. To the students because I don't want them to do safe stuff. I want them to do hard stuff. I, the, I mean, one of the other things that got me thinking about that um, is whenever I was teaching in a more traditional way, and I've talked to other professors who have the same experience, you give students a rubric for a paper or project, and you get these projects back that basically feel like students did the rubric rather than the assignment. They, they treated the assignment as a checklist. Okay. There's five items on the rubric. I'm going to check them all off. And you know, I'm, I'm never one to blame students unless it's obvious. So I'm like, well, something must be wrong. It's not that students are lazy. It's something must be wrong with this. And then of course, when you think about it, it, it makes a lot of sense. If you give students a rubric and say, here's the five things you have to do to get an A, they're going to do a project that matches up to the rubric pretty, pretty heavily. Uh, whereas once you give them control of the grade and say, well, you, you figure out your own progress, you, you demonstrate mastery in the way you think makes sense. Um, they're a lot more likely to choose harder things. Now, when you say they're in control of the grade, does that mean they get to choose their letter grade at the end of the course? Yeah, basically. So what they do is, um, Let's take a little bit of explanation, but instead of turning their final project into me, what they do is they exhibit their project. I do it in an online discussion forum. I'd love to do it in class, but we just don't have enough time. So they exhibit their project, every like final document product they have, they put up online and other students essentially give and receive feedback. So everyone looks at two or three projects, they fill out a, a feedback form, or I, it could be more organic depending uh, they give and receive feedback on each other's projects. Like on my feedback form, I have questions like, here's what I learned about from your project. Here's something I think that you could potentially improve upon if you want to further your project. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, and once they give and receive feedback, they use their feedback and they their own reflection on their own project to fill out what I call a project summary report, which is, a document that the questions on it are basically, um, did I get what I wanted to get from my project? Why or why not? Did I learn anything unanticipated in my project? What were, what are the things about my project that I, I'm the most proud of? What are the things in my project that I think I fell short on? If I had another week to expand my project, how would I expand it? And then the final question is, given all of that, what grade would you assign yourself? And I give them an optional rubric if they want to use it, but I don't, I, I tell them you don't have to use this rubric. This is just, if you want a bit more structure and, and then they give themselves a grade. And I tell, I tell them I can veto your grade. If I have strong evidence that you've misrepresented something uh, like if you've plagiarized or if you've copied someone else's project, or if you've done something that's so small, if you've done a project that's so small that I know that you didn't put the work in, that you said, and I can basically prove it, but that happens very rarely. Okay. And then what is the distribution of grades that are 
that are self-assigned in your your course typically? Is it all A's? I mean, they're generally pretty high, but I think people would be surprised at the number of grades that are into the B and C level. I think I've given a, I've had students give themselves D's before. Uh, the, the the example that I always love to give when people ask how well this works um, is there was a student who who wanted to do a project. It was a history ed student who wanted to do a project where they create a guide that that his own students will be able to use on how to write good history papers. And he was going to go through, you know, good and bad history papers and write out kind of a, a guide, a style guide and all that stuff. And for various reasons, he came up with a project that was well short of where he thought he should go. He confessed to me that he kind of overthought certain things um, and he had other work to do that took his attention away. And when he exhibited the project, he started his paragraph of explanation with, first of all, I'm sorry for the quality of my project. This is not where I thought I would be. I came up well short. Uh, I know that, but here's my project anyway. And then when he did his summary report, he mentioned all that stuff. And he said, for that reason, I really think that I should get like a, maybe a mid or high D. Um, and then it, it, as an addendum to that story, I convinced him for project three, uh, he had done this for project one, for the third project, I convinced him, you know, I really think you should go back and just redo that project because it sounds to me like you know what you did wrong. It sounds to me like you have clear ideas now and I can help you in whatever ways you want. Um, I really think you should go back and do it. And he, he did it and it was way more complete the second time and he gave himself a, a much higher grade. So in all honesty, it's mostly A's, some B's, and then there's some outliers that are like C's and D's. But that gets me on the, the, the that gets me on a whole grade rant. And I don't know if you want me to go on that. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that leads into one of my next questions. But first, I, I want to observe that since these students are at the end of their their university careers before they go into student teaching, I imagine that that they're pretty relaxed about the grades they give themselves to. Like, like they they're probably aware if giving themselves a C or a D is going to sink. Yeah, there, their there's no right. There's GPA not a, with some consequences. That's right. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a yeah, unique situation. I, I mean, I I. It's funny because colleges, just like K-12, it's not really that different. Colleges function on what I like to call a great economy. Like in, in a very real sense, the learning and teaching that goes on at the college level functions on giving and receiving grades. It's, that's what makes the system run. Um, and I have a, a, a mild like hate relationship with, with that. I, I think so much of the research on grading is so clear that grades don't do the sort of motivating that we think they do. They do a very different kind of motivating. Um, and then there's this idea that you have to have this distribution of grades. And that comes from the whole idea of grading on a curve, which I'm sure you know very well from your natural science stint. Uh, did, did your classes curve grades? I believe they did. Yeah. And, and for those who don't know, I mean, curving grades is basically this idea that you're supposed to have this distribution of grades. And if you have too many A's, you did it wrong. And, and you're supposed to, uh, in some sense, adjust the, the real score that people would get in your class so that it matches this distribution, where I think most students are supposed to kind of fall in the middle, aren't they? Yeah. And I remember being part of some classes where most people were getting bad grades, too. Right. 
right. and and a lot of people are upset about so that. It, it sort of offends our our sensibilities that you know the average grade in a class is a C minus. It's like, well, the professor's being too hard or too unfair. Then, yeah. So, I mean, again, without getting too like conceptual about it, there's these two ways that you can grade, and the first is quote unquote mastery based, and the second is quote unquote um, criterion uh, based, or I guess. Uh, norm-based, a, a norm-based grading system. And mastery-based is your grading based on how someone did on the material case closed. It's a grade that has nothing to do with their score relative to other people's scores. Um, a norm-based system would look more like um, an IQ test where your score is literally your your real number combined with how well you did compared to everyone else. Um and the whole idea that there's supposed to be a norm, like a distribution of grades, comes from that second idea, which is that school is supposed to be this sorting process that doesn't, that, that really only assigns high grades to a few people or a certain number of people. Because if you let too many people have high grades, you're not really sorting anymore. You're just kind of giving everyone A's or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I have a real problem with, with that idea. I, I can understand the logic of it if you're trying to certify for professions where there's a benefit to not letting everyone through. For um, example, like, I don't know. You don't want everyone surgeons. to become a, right. You don't want everyone to get an MD, right? You don't, you don't want whoever can pay for it just to be able to get a medical license. Um, but you also have to realize that that idea of school as a sorting process conflicts with school as a learning process. Mm. There's a conflict there. Um, because it could be that everyone in your class does really well just because you're a great teacher and everyone got the concepts. Cool. But, you know, your, your department chair is going to look at you and say, really, really, did everyone really do well? Or are you just a, too easy a grader, so to speak? Hmm. Um, I don't know if all this is making sense, but I this just, makes sense to, I to grapple me. with it. Yeah. And I feel like maybe there's this distinction between the disciplines where you do want to, to grade on a curve and therefore, sort people um, maybe because of like the, the the medical degree example and then the field that you're in or maybe more broadly speaking liberal arts fields maybe the case is stronger for uh, mastery based grading it sort of depends on if you want university to be about learning or if you want it to be about career prep and certification Oh boy. Well, now we have to talk about the case against education. You were, you were very helpful in, in helping me digest this book. Uh, it's by the economist, Brian Kaplan. Uh, and I wrote about it in, in my new book a lot. Yes. It's, it's what seems to be, and what seems to still be the most comprehensive review of all of the, the scientific literature, all the social science on essentially what is school, uh, both at the K through 12 and the higher education level, really about? Is it more about actual learning and actual gaining of critical thinking and other meta-level skills? Or is it more about job market, you know, signaling and credentialing? Yep. And and that is that's a, a discussion that not that does not happen often enough. And so I'm very thankful to Brian Kaplan for writing that book because he just dives into it and he comes up, uh, you know, for those who are not going to read the book and that's probably most of us, cause it's actually a fairly dense book. Um, 
you know, he comes up with two broad conclusions. One is that, yes, okay, maybe there's three broad conclusions. Uh, the first is that, yes, uh, a lot of what we suspect about uh, especially high school and college is true, which is that it is more about credentialing and signaling and kind of showing a future employer that you are a highly employable, intelligent, conscientious, and fairly conformist person. Um, and it's less so about learning. Um, now, that means that for an individual, uh, it actually still makes sense often to go through the system and get through the credential. But on a societal level, and this is the more controversial finding in the book, it's actually um, a, a big waste of a lot of people's time and money yeah. because it's essentially credential inflation. Yeah, the, the analogy he uses might be helpful here, yeah. um, which is if you're at a concert and you want to see the stage better, the, the obvious beneficial thing to do is to stand up. But then the problem is that the people behind you will now probably stand up. And if everyone is standing up in your row, other people are going to stand up because they're like, wow, cool. We can see the stage better. No one, if everyone stands up, no one actually sees the stage better. It's just made it so that everyone has to stand up. So it, it's kind of a waste for everyone to stand up if everyone's going to do it. Um, so like on an individual it's level, it's beneficial for you to stand up at the concert, but on a collective level, it just wastes everyone's energy because they could have seen the stage just as well if they sat down. That's right. So uh, this is a book that you, uh, I believe, were generally compelled by. And, and mm -hmm. do you feel like he, he lays out the issues uh, clearly? Do you have any major... You did publish a, a review of the book that, that was fairly critical. So I'd just love to hear your take on, on how he lays out the major problems. And, and uh, Yeah, well, I mean, to, to bring this back to the self-directed education or self-directed learning issue for any listeners who think we're far afield, we're actually not far afield at all. This has everything to do with whether self-directed learning is possible in schools. I mean, his argument is basically, and, and a lot of other people have made this a similar argument. Historian David Labrie has uh, written a lot of historical sociology on higher ed, come to similar conclusions, is that education, uh, especially at the college level, for better or worse, is largely driven by the credentialing process. It's much more of a credentialing program than it is a learning program. Um, and Kaplan is, is a lot more empirical than historical in his analysis. So he goes through a lot of different lines of argument. So like one of the things he talks about is if college were about the learning, you would expect people who drop out sometime in their senior year of college to make a little bit more than people who would drop out, you know, or their junior year or, or would make a little bit less than people who finished college, right? Because theoretically they have almost all of the knowledge. Um, that their peers have who've gone to school for another year. But that's not at all the case. People who drop out their junior year make a lot less than people who graduate. Why? Because they didn't graduate. They don't have the piece of paper. So it's not so much about the learning. It's about the credentialing. And you can see that in, in that example. Um, I think if you ask students themselves, like if you, you know, when, when professors have easy classes and give easy A's. If it were about the learning, the students would be pretty disappointed. That would be like going to a personal trainer who's like, you know, just do like two push-ups. It's cool. <laughs> right? Uh, people would be mad at that. They're like, I'm paying you to help me train and you're just telling me to do a few push-ups. 
but at the college level, you know, I mean, if, if a professor has an easy class, if you go to the, the website ratemyprofessors.com, um, you see a lot of students celebrating, oh, this, this class was an easy A, it's great, it's awesome, right? If it's about learning, they wouldn't be saying that. It's about credentialing, and it's, it makes sense uh, if it's about credentialing to prefer the easy classes to the hard classes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that Kaplan's point is, is pretty sound. Um, and it relates to the self-directed learning aspect in the following way. If school is really driven for the most part by credentialing, and if students' uh, attention is driven mostly by getting grades, which leads to credits, which leads to the degree, then it's really hard to do self-directed learning in the sense of you're really trying to get students to learn kind of sincerely, genuinely. We really want to take the focus off the grade. You know, that's what I try to do in my classes. I want to take the focus off of the grade, which is one of the reasons I give them control of their grade. But let's face it, their, their attention is still going to be drawn to that grade because realistically, that's what they need to get the certification, which in all honesty is the primary thing people care about. And that's not a diss on students. That's not me trying to disrespect students. I think they have to care about the grade. They have to care about the grade and, and the degree because that's where the cash value is. That's where the payoff is to their degree. I don't remember where I picked this up, but there are some people that are trying to implement a new kind of protected category of, of information that can be used in hiring. And they essentially want um, empl employers to no longer be able to ask about a potential employee's college credentials during the hiring process. Hmm. You can ask them about their skills. You can ask them about work that they've done previously, but you can't, you know, the, the applicant cannot say I have a bachelor's from Harvard. Right. Um, yeah. That would be interesting. That, yeah. that would definitely be interesting. Um, yeah. I'd, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I fully understand that in terms of the grade economy that we use in colleges, if we were no longer able to grade, the whole thing would fall apart. It, it just would not work. Um, but the, you know, grades and credits produce really, I would argue, perverse incentives. Um, are you familiar with the, the, the idea of Campbell's law or Goodhart's no, law? Okay. So again, uh, if, for listeners who think we're going far afield, this actually has a lot to do with, with the topic. So uh, Goodhart was an economist, Campbell was a social scientist. They, all, they both came to this similar conclusion in, in their research, which is that if you have something that's supposed to be a measure and it becomes a target, then it really loses its force as a measure. And grades are a really good example of this. So ideally, grades are supposed to be a measure of a person's learning. If you get a C, that's just supposed to tell you, well, you, you need to, you're, you're falling behind or you're not where you should be or whatever. But realistically, grades are a target. Students shoot for them. It, so once you shoot for something, it really can't be a measure because there's often ways to hit that target that don't really measure what they're supposed to measure. And, you know, so the obvious example here would be students can cheat to get a good grade. Students can cram to get a good grade. There's a lot of ways to get a good grade that don't have a lot to do with learning the material in a deep way. Kevin, can you give me an example of something where the target and the measure are, are very distinct and there's not a lot of overlap? 
Oh, let's I'm, see. I'm struggling to think of an example myself. I, so, I believe uh, you that this happens. Okay. It just seems so prevalent. So you're talking about an area where you could achieve the target without really measuring anything of significance? Well, if you're going to be measured, opposite. if you're going to be assessed somehow, like what what, what is the domain of, of whatever learning or, or accomplishment? What's an activity where we don't get distracted by those, those measurements, by oh. those metrics? <laughs> Yeah, um, learning the guitar. You can't cheat. If the measure is whether you can play a killer lead guitar solo and you have to learn how to do that, there's no way you can hit that target without it being a good measure of your progress. Okay. Right? Like most of the hobbies we have, like I, I've talked about st to students about this when we talk about grading. Um, and how artificial the the idea of grading for progress is as a measure of progress. I'm like, you know, I ask them, what is what is a hobby that you have? And they tell me, like, I, oh, I garden or I cook or um, I, I I play guitar, I make jewelry or whatever it is. I'm like, okay, when is the last time you've cheated? When you've learned something towards that hobby? When is the last time you've cheated? No, they they often don't even understand the question. Like, what do you mean? Why would I cheat? <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, but now let's look at school. When is the last time you or someone you know, <clears throat> when is the last time you've cheated on a test? Everyone knows what I'm talking about. People yeah. cheat on tests all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't cheat when you're trying to learn your hobby because there's literally no point. Okay. Right? It, this way of explaining it makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. So, so and again, this this has a lot to do with self-directed learning in the sense that Self-directed learning ideally is you're learning because you want to learn something. That's what learning the guitar as a hobby is. That's what you do when you learn how to make jewelry. That's what you do when you get uh, into that proverbial rabbit hole of YouTube videos where you're learning about a topic that you just can't pull yourself away from. You're not doing it to hit a standard. You're doing I, it because you want to do it. You're doing it for purely intrinsic reasons. I, and yeah, I'm sorry. I just have to say that I love this this way of conceiving of self-directed learning. And I, I don't think I've ever heard it put this way. Just like mm. self-directed learning is doing something and in which cheating would make no sense. Uh, this makes me think of when I, was, when I was preparing to try to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada at mm. age 22. Spoiler alert, I did it for two weeks and then I quit. <laughs> but I remember in my, my lead up to that, my research, uh, someone had written, Listen, this is not about going from Mexico to Canada. If you want to go from Mexico to Canada, buy a plane ticket. Like a bus, yeah. Yeah, This you are signing up for the walk. And it's yep. going to be miserable at, at certain times. It's, you know, that's what you're signing up for is kind of the drudgery. And so make sure that you, you are doing it for that reason. Uh, because to cheat, like to go on a hike and say, you know, I want to climb this mountain. I'm going to take a helicopter instead. I mean, that, yep. that just defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. I mean, to, to bring in a story from my, the self-directed class that I was talking about earlier to illustrate the point. Um, one of my students during a particular semester, she was an elementary education major, and she was doing a project that researched different ways to conceive of healthy student-teacher relationships. Like how should a teacher relate to students? You know, there's, there's a model of you should be, as, you know, like almost like a peer. There's a model of you should be a stern authority figure. There's, so she wanted to compare all these and, and talk to teachers who, you know, are, are examples of all of them. 
And she did this really cool uh, report. She turned it into basically a report to, so that she could think about where she wants to come out. And a few days before the exhibition, she looked really concerned. So I sat down with her and I said, what's wrong? And she's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do for my exhibition for when I exhibit this project. I just have, I, it's not complete. I said, well, what's, what's the problem? And she pulled out her laptop and she pulled up a document with 10 questions on it. And she said, I started with one question and I now have like 10 questions. I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. Present that. She's like, what do you mean present that? It's not finished. It's not a finished product. Like you don't have to present a finished product. That's awesome. Present how you went from having one question to having 10 questions, because that's amazing. That tells me that you learned a ton. And she was so used to the idea that when you present something, it has to be a finished product. You have to start out with a question and your job is by the end of the project, you're supposed to answer that question. Uh, and I had to really convince her, like, you know, you don't have to finish this product. It doesn't have to be finished. You can end with 10 questions and that would be fine. Just so she ended up doing a project about how she went from that one question to more than one question. And she went through each new question that she has and explained why she now has it. Uh, and it was a really great project. But again, she had to be convinced by that because in the conventional education system, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, we have this idea that your job is by the end of the project to finish the project. And I, I think that's a byproduct of the idea that we grade based on the criterion on the rubric. Did you meet that criteria? Did you succeed in answering the question that you put to yourself or whatever? Um, it, yeah, it's self-directed learning is in a lot of ways a very different way of learning because what I wanted to tell her was it's never finished. Let's not act like you just finish up and then you wrap that up and then it's just finished with nothing left dangling. Hmm. Um, here's something that's been on my mind for a long time, Kevin, and I feel like you're the right person to address it. Do you believe, as I do, that as we go from lower levels of formal education up to undergrad, master's, and PhD programs, that self-direction generally increases? Uh, like, Do you think that PhD programs, by and large, are a great example of self-directed learning, putting a lot of, of choice and, and, and autonomy, you know, with the learner, uh, you know, having very flexible ways of defining what, what success looks like. Uh, do you think that's true? Uh, this is hard because, you know, I mentioned the name Malcolm Knowles before who created the idea of andragogy and he very much believed that adults, the, the further you get into adulthood, the more capacity you have for self-directed learning and the more desire you'll probably have for self-directed learning. I've also heard the case made the other way, right? I've heard, you know, the case made by people like Peter Gray, which is like, no, it's like younger kids are just natural self-directed yep. learners. Um, I'm not really sure where I stand on this. Um, I'd have to ask like kind of what, what your reasons are, because I guess part of my problem with the idea that the older you get, the more self-directed the environments generally are, is that you've generally by that time gone through 13 years of school that have told you not to do that and have disincentivized you from doing that. I think a lot of people can preserve that sort of desire for self-direction through those, through that 13 years. I think a lot of other people can't. Um, well, I think a lot of people at some point just had this idea that no, um, teachers are there to tell you what to do. You're supposed to do it that's what school is because that's what school has been for me. 
for 13 years. And I think in terms of master's and PhD programs, I guess you also have to realize that you're dealing with a very self-selected group. Yes. Of, of people. So, so I'm going to run a thought experiment by you. If we took yeah. the, the PhD model of essentially choose a domain, find an interesting question that has not yet been, been, you know, adequately answered and, and, and go for it. You got a bunch of years and you have some, you have some advisors, you have some other grad students who are working on their own projects, but essentially it's kind of on you to, to figure out what you're going to study, how you're going to do it. Um, you know, ask for support when you need it. Otherwise you're on your own. Uh, do you think that model could be applied to the, I don't know, high school level uh, among a much broader population, not just this self-selected population of, of super academic achievers? Yeah, I think we would have to rid ourselves of a whole lot of cultural biases first. So one of the ideas that sort of makes education go is that everyone has to come out knowing the same stuff. So obviously, if you implemented something like that program, which is like, choose what you want to do and spend your time doing it that way, like doing it to, to fulfillment, you would have to really chip away, if not get rid of the idea that it's like, everyone needs to know the same stuff because everyone would literally come out knowing different stuff. And I've had that question put to me by, by some um, critics of my approach is like, well, how are you guaranteeing that students know the same stuff? And my answer without being too um, dismissive is we live in 2020. I don't think it's necessary that everyone comes out knowing the same stuff. Like, you know, I work in a hallway of professors who all know different stuff. My, the, the, the uh, person next door to me in, in, in terms of my hallway is uh, a reading specialist who focuses on middle grades. I, I don't do that. I'm a philosopher of education, but I think that works out really well because if I have a question about reading, I can go to her office. And if she has a question about some education theorist, she can come to my office. I think that, you know, that's the way it should be. So I guess my answer is I'm kind of pessimistic about that, but sim not because I don't think it could work, but because I don't think that we have the cultural assumptions in place that would make something like that palatable for people. I would also say that if you put some sort of grading system on it, that would either diminish its effectiveness or it would potentially kill it, right? Because if you said, okay, take a year, research what you want to do. Oh, by the way, here's the rubric on which we're going to grade you at the end of the year, mm. but go, go do what you want to do. You're, you're sending two different messages and students, if they really care about that grade, and if we have a society where that grade is really important, they're going to follow the grading incentive rather than the go learn what you want incentive. And that's another aspect of, of PhD programs that I love from the viewpoint of self-directed learning that the, the mastery indicator is essentially stand in front of this group of, of people who yeah. really know this subject and just kind of, you know, prove that you, you can think widely about this topic. I mean, yeah. that's how they do it at the Sudbury Valley school, right? When you, you yeah. want to graduate, you just have to kind of stand up, explain how you used your time there and why you think you're ready to go out into the adult world. And, and no one has to go through that graduation you know, ceremony, but a lot of them want to, it kind of feels like this rite of passage. And, and I imagine that they, they want that, that challenge. They want to be, you know, to have to defend how they use their time so that afterwards they can, I mean, they can really believe that it's like they've, they've gone through the crucible and yeah. And, and, and even that as a metric 
of success, even that is is a little bit delicate because uh, having gone through the PhD process myself, I know of people personally and through secondhand stories who have tailored their dissertation to what they knew their committee wanted to see. Because if sure. the goal is co convince my committee and then I get a PhD, you're going to do the study that you think your committee wants to see rather than the one that maybe challenges your committee a little bit, even though that may be the one you really want to do. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a committee where I didn't really have to make that choice, but I structured my committee very deliberately that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely hope we're not lingering on the whole grading idea too long, but I had to think about this a lot. Um, and maybe it's just my nature as a, as a philosopher to turn it over in my head, but I had to really think about, okay, what are the pros to the idea of grading and what are the cons to the idea of grading? And if I want this kind of learning where people are learning stuff they really want to learn because they really want to learn it, how do grades disincentivize that? And is there a way to create a grading system that balances what, what my department expects of me, which is important, but also preserves what I really would like to happen in my course. I had to really think about the, the power dynamics that are involved in grading. And I, I guess when, the more I did it, the more I really soured on the idea of grading as like the best worst um, plan for college education. So to start to wrap this up, Kevin, like what are you excited about right now within the realm of, of self-directed learning? at the college level, like maybe for yourself and for the classes that you teach, do you have any ideas about where you may take it in the future or maybe what you've seen other people doing at this level? Well, um, I mean, I think it's definitely important to um, you know, recognize going back to what we talked about before that self-directed learning isn't just a thing. It's you can give people freedom on a whole lot of different variables on what to learn, how to learn, when to learn, where to learn, and those are all very different. You don't have to give someone freedom in all those areas. You can give someone freedom in one or two of them. It depends on your circumstance. Um, I really hope that the whole experience with COVID and the coronavirus, which has kind of forced a lot of universities and schools to do more of an online approach, I hope that it gets people realizing that there are a lot of benefits to self-directed learning. Um, the more control you give to the learner, the, the more viable some of those more remote programs probably are. I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it does. Um, yeah. yeah it, it, and I hope that, you know, people will kind of rethink how much structure we need in a college program versus, you know, um, maybe stripping it down to its essentials. What are the, what is the least amount of structure we can have in a college program and the most amount of freedom that we can have? Yeah, and I guess that we have had this sort of independent variable forced upon us, uh, which is yeah. not being able to meet face to face, not being able to to control the students' work as closely, and, and so this is a, a giant natural experiment which is happening. Well, I like to describe it um, again a little bit pessimistically as the worst of all possible worlds um, because schools can no longer send people to these environments that are specifically structured to avoid distraction so that the only viable thing to pay attention to is the teacher at the front of the room. But we still retain all of the demands of traditional school as if they were in that place. So, you know, when, when, when 
teach when when parents and and what and teachers are like, well, how do I get my kid to do their math? Well, when they're in school, that's easy because there's very little else to do in that room other than the math assignment. So now they're in at home where there's a whole lot of distractions around them, but they're still expected to do that math assignment. So it's just a lot harder to to control it. So I'm I'm hoping that people find that well maybe we should just loosen up. Maybe we should allow kids to do the math assignment when they want to do the math assignment, or instead of prescribing that they have to learn the math from this textbook, maybe I can assign them to like find resources that can help them learn it, whether it's a Khan Academy video or a, another YouTube video or something like that. There's no reason that I have to control the entire process. And when they're not in school, it's harder to control it, their, their process. So I'm really hoping that we use it as an opportunity to, to loosen up a little bit of that control. I hope so too. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for coming back onto the podcast. This has been a super interesting conversation. Oh yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Blake.